Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. We now have the two greatest words in the English language, Game 7. Even as ugly as this series has been, we do have a Game 7. Bucks fans, I've got to know, how you feeling right about now? I mean, honestly, shoot me straight. How you feeling right about now? Because I've got to think that there were times last night when you thought that it was over especially in the third quarter when Kevin Durant started doing Kevin Durant things all over again. Harden out of the right, try to get a Durant and does. Right of the lane, working against Holiday. Backing him in, knocked loose, gets it back, turns baseline, fade away, and it rattles home for Kevin Durant. Nets got to back it up now on the defensive side and rebound. Nets radio, that's the thing about Durant, like it's so hard but he makes that stuff look like it's so easy, like it's nothing at all. When he pulled them back into the game in the second half, Bucks fan, admit it, you were starting to already think about the Brewers and the Packers. You were already starting to think about what this team was going to have to do to retool in the offseason because you've seen this movie before. In fact, you saw that movie 48 hours earlier when KD hit you for 49, and it ended in agony. And as bad as it was when KD got rolling, it was even worse when your guys fouled James Harden on a three late in the shot clock. I mean, I don't know about you. In fact, I do know about you. At that point, you had to be asking yourselves, do we have the dumbest team ever? Because we consistently do the dumbest thing ever at the worst possible times. You know, like fouling a one-legged James Harden on a three the hell are you fouling this guy at all when he's out there on one leg? I mean, it is so dumb. Make this guy put it on the deck and make him beat you. At that point, how could you not think, here comes the dumb again. Here we go again. They do this time and time again. They're doing it right now. Their season's about to come to another catastrophic end. Except this time it didn't, because this time, instead of clutching down, they clutched up. Instead of manning down, they manned up. And when the Nets cut the lead to five, the Bucks went on a 14-0 run. That's what you would expect from a title contender. Facing elimination on their own floor, man the hell up. Especially against a busted-up team that was gassing out after leaving it all out there in a really emotional win the game before. Like, the last thing the Bucs wanted to do was let the Nets hang around, steal the game, and have their season end, and then send them into an extremely awkward and uncomfortable offseason that you know is going to cost people their jobs. So, credit to the Bucs. They did what they had to do. They got it done. They finished. They should have done this sooner, but they did it last night. Then you have Chris... Giannis and PJ making damn sure that something catastrophic didn't happen yet again. Chris Middleton coming up huge. 38 points, 5 threes, 10 boards, 5 assists, 5 steals. In other words, the guy was a monster. Most productive player on the floor last night, and that's saying something. But as much as last night was about Middleton coming through time and time again, it also was about Giannis picking a good time to remember that he's Giannis and that he is a two-time MVP and that when he attacks the rack and he's playing downhill instead of settling for jumpers and fallaways against a one-legged beard, when he remembers that, He's nearly impossible to stop. Green with the pump fake, missed it inside, missed the tip. Boy, Lopez at the rim, a, a problem for the Mets. Giannis, oh, with the finger roll. And the turbo kicked in, and he got all the way to the basket. Again, I'm not sure what took him so long to remember that that's what he has to do, but luckily he figured that out better late than never. Man, attack the basket. Attack the basket. Go right at them. Play downhill. Don't settle. P.J. Tucker, you never have to worry about. He was getting it started on defense. And I'll get back to P.J. in a second. But check out the defense-to-offense transition right here from the Bucs. Giannis picks up Durant on the switch. Nice time. Green got ripped underneath. Tough night for Jeff Green. Giannis in transition. Through the contact. Count it. 
That's what I'm saying. Not just the block from Tucker. It's the Giannis took it strong to the bucket, ran right over Joe Harris, and he finished. Giannis, and he had more. Connaughton catching shoot three. Halfway down and out. And Tenacumpo. Oh! Flex on him, Giannis! That's what you want to see, a dunk and then a stare down. Not kicking it out to the three-point line or stopping at the three-point line himself when the Nets throw up a wall. Again, that's the Giannis you need to see if you're a Bucks fan. That's the Giannis everybody needs to see. The two-time MVP playing strong and dominating everybody around him. It was going so well last night that Milwaukee fans started to feel so good about themselves, they busted out a Bucks in seven chant. And then Big Bro busted out the windmill. Chioza had it stolen away by Thanasis, who gets fouled at midcourt by Paris. And then Thanasis does a dunk contest-style dunk on the other end after the whistle. So, what do we have? We have ourselves a Game 7. Giannis v. KD in a Game 7 tomorrow night. Somewhere, Canadian rock legends, lover boy, are fired up. Because the tape machines will be working for the weekend. You know, the tape machines. Like, if KD gets over, it's about KD dragging this busted-up Nets team. Get it, Rit. Rit loves Loverboy. The tape machine working overdrive. Like, if KD gets over, that means KD is dragging his team over the finish line. That proves that KD is better than Giannis. But if you know KD, whether he says it or not, you better make sure you don't compare him to Giannis because you know he won't like that. Then you've got Giannis himself. If he gets over on KD on the road, those takes are going to be flying thick and fast and furious. If he buries the ghosts from the early part of the series, especially that game five, when he had the game in his hands and he dropped it repeatedly, that would be so big for Giannis enormous for him. So, Buck fans, I know you're nervous. You have to be nervous. I know you were nervous all last night until the clock hit triple zeros because game five is the kind of game that leaves serious scar tissue. When you have a lead like that and Kevin Durant erases it the way he did, you're never going to forget that because you know he can do it again. So, while I do appreciate that chant, late in the game, I know you were sweating it big time. Let me give you a bit of confidence going into tomorrow night. The confidence is not going to come from the fact that Chris Middleton had another massive game or that Giannis has gone for a 30-point double-double in each of his last four games. No. You know where the confidence is coming from? My man, P.J. Tucker. As you know, this is an enormous P.J. Tucker house. I love what he brings to this team on defense and in that locker room. If you do not understand why I always hype this guy... Why I love this guy. Check his comments last night after the game about that matchup with KD. He's going to score, right? So how do you like deal with that? Like, like well, you just said it. He's going to score. So how do you mean how you going to deal with this? There's nothing you can do. You can fight him as much as you want. He's going he's gonna to hit some crazy shots. He's going to score a lot of them. It's going to happen so much. I got to switch it up. I got to give him different looks. I can't guard him the same every time. I pick him up full course sometimes. Sometimes I fight over. Sometimes I try to get under. Sometimes I try to... I try to do everything I can to try to get any type of advantage to make him not score, but he's going to do it. So I don't get frustrated. It's going to happen. You got to go next play, next play. What we can't do is get frustrated with him scoring. Now people start trying to help, and now everybody else starts scoring, and that's when it gets ugly, and that's when game one and game two happen. Preach, my man. I wish he could bottle that stuff. I'd pay so much money for that stuff. And he was only getting started. You're known for your talking, not trash talking, but talking a lot. But what can you say to Durant? Nothing, right? You can't say, oh, I got you on that turnover or anything. You just let we, it go. We actually right? talk about that all the time. Like the one I thought he walked. I was like, did you walk? I, I was like, I got you to walk. He was like, nah, I, uh, I stepped through. I said, yeah, but your left foot moved. Like we're having real conversations. Like we like... People see us fight, but they don't know if we like talk about like regular stuff too. He's like, stop fighting with Blake. I'm you're gonna get thrown out, and then we can't play. I'm like, yeah, you're right. My bad. That's actually pretty cool. That's actually pretty cool. Durant telling PJ to stop fighting with Blake Griffin because, quote, you're gonna get thrown out and then you can't play. I mean, pretty damn cool because most guys in that situation want PJ to get tossed because he makes things difficult on the player. 
But Durant doesn't want that because he loves the battle with P.J. as much as P.J. loves that battle with Durant. I could play P.J.'s entire media availability because it was that good, but let me leave you with one final thing from him. It's the playoffs, man. Like, I don't know what people think. Like, we dream about this our whole lives. Like, I, I dream about being in the playoffs, guarding the best player in the world. Like, that's, that's like, this is what, like, we, like, I'm, I'll die out there. Like, I'm, this is, I'm living my dream. I'm not backing down from nothing. I'm fighting for every inch. Like, I don't understand everybody's like, oh, like, the, all this little stuff. Like, me and Kevin fight every year. Like, I've guarded him every year in the playoffs. Go to state, Oklahoma City, it doesn't matter. We, every regular season, playoffs, I love guarding him. I enjoy it. He's the best scorer I've ever seen in my life. I told Rick Barnes on his visit when, his junior, when he was a junior in high school, he's going to be the best player I've ever seen in my life. He killed us. Like, I knew this. He's an 11th grader. Like, this is like, I don't, I don't understand people. Like, that's my brother. We compete. We fight every game. We're going to fight again, game seven. That is a part of it. So it's uh, all this other, all the other stuff is just stuff. My man, all this other stuff is just stuff. It's like nobody understands. Nobody gets it. Everybody's trying to get into this guy about, man, you hate that guy, don't you? What's it like to go up against that guy? And he's like, what's it like to go up against that guy? It's the best thing ever. This is what I'm here for. This is what I've worked my entire life for. This is what I've been dreaming about my entire life. I'm exactly where I want to be in the playoffs, in a game seven, going up against the best in the world, a guy that I knew was going to be the best in the world when I saw him in 11th grade. What are you all doing out here, man? This is the best. This is what I mean when I wish I could play his entire media availability. This is why I, I, I love P.J. Tucker and love getting him on the show and have not been able to do it nearly enough. I love this guy. Quote, I'll die out there. I'm living my dream. I'm not backing down from nothing. I'm fighting for every inch. Game seven, tomorrow night. Man, let's do this. I love PJ. Oh, and back to Chris Middleton. I have not seen a Middleton that ruthless since, well, okay, how about this? That notable caller, Jeff in Middleton. Does that name ring a bell? Remember when that dude came out of nowhere and dropped this on this show? I'm HIV, bruh, and you Irv. I'll end your career, homie. That's who you're dealing with now, lamb chop. You believe that? This is a metaphor for your business's journey. Sometimes it feels like you're going 100 miles an hour, barely keeping up. But to cruise through challenges, you need someone who's right there with you. That's what Dell Technologies advisors do. They have the tech advice you need to get past whatever's in front of you and get to where you want to go. For advice on solutions like XPS 13 laptops powered by Intel Evo Platform, call an advisor today at 877-ASK-DELL. Friend of the program, if there's a big event, he is at it and we run him down and this is no different. Rex, good to have you back. How are you, Rex? I, I've got to be honest with you. Your audience is, is fascinating to me because when you tweet that Rex is going to be on the show, like everyone throws like 12 Rexes at you. Like, oh, no, you should have this Rex on the show. And I had no idea. I'm like, oh, wow, I, I didn't know that guy was a Rex. Like, that's amazing to me. Dude, is this just now becoming news to you? This has been a thing for a long, long time. They love no, you I, and they love it. I'm Rex 7. I own it. Like, there's still people in my neighborhood that call me Rex 7. It was just, man, like, this is a serious competition. I need to up my game. Nah, dude, you're right where you need to be. Rex number 7. They cannot take that from you. That's exactly where you want to be. All right, so, and part of the reason for that is you're always in the right place at the right time with great content, and Rex number 7's got a good ring to it. One of the big stories, Rex number 7, with U.S. Open is always how the course is set up. So let me start right there. What do you make of the course set up? How did it look, and how did it play yesterday? Day in your mind this one's pretty straightforward like it, we we talk every u.s open and it's always different we're talking about different venues we're talking about places that we normally don't go we're talking about marion's cool spots this one we come to every year and i think i have to hand it to the usga when they set this one up they decide not to get too tricky i mean they're going to grow the rough up and the green's going to be a little bit firmer and a little bit faster but other than that it's what we get in february at the farmer's insurance open and i think there's a level of appreciation that the field has for this golf course that when they show up, they know exactly what they have to do. There's nothing tricky about it. 
Hmm. Rex Hogger joining us. So, Rex, what about the fact that, as an example, this is the final year and the final U.S. Open with Mike Davis as CEO of the USGA. He's always in the news around the U.S. Open. So what do you think his legacy is going to be, especially when it comes to graduated rough and the punishment for players who get into the rough? I wrote that legacy story earlier this week, and I always find it fascinating because you know this better than I do. We, we don't get to write our own stories. Like, we don't get to control our own narrative more times than not, and certainly that's the case when it comes to Mike. And you brought up graduated rough. I think that was the one thing that everyone seemed to go back to, and it was also the idea of short par fours, which really hadn't been a thing, at least at U.S. Open venues in the past, and maybe going to a little bit different U.S. Open venues, thinking about Aaron Hills and Chambers Bay. And the one thing that kept coming up is people talking about how he was such a forward thinker, and he wanted to experiment. He wanted to do new things. And let's face it, the USGA is not an organization that likes to embrace new and different. This is all about tradition. So I think his legacy is going to be sort of trying to break the mold, trying to get this organization to look forward and embrace some things that maybe previous generations didn't. And when you look at what Bryson DeChambeau and Brooks Kepka and Roy McIlroy and the rest of these are doing for the game, I think Mike was completely on board with that. We're talking to Rex Hoggard. In fact, I want to follow you up on that and ask you about those guys in a minute, but I want to talk one more thing or mention one more thing about Davis. He was talking earlier this week about Tiger Woods and his win at Torrey in 2008. He said that he received a phone call from Mark Steinberg, Tiger's agent, before the tournament started. What did Steinberg tell him? That was fascinating to me because we all know now in retrospect, I mean, that was, you know, it's such an iconic moment in sports and such an iconic moment for Tiger. But we didn't know how badly he was hurt at the time. It was after the fact. We knew that he was struggling with a knee injury. We didn't know his leg was broken and that he was dealing with all kinds of other physical issues. But Mark Steinberg, Tiger's agent, called Mike about a week before the championship. And they were considering this pairing that included world number one, two, and three, which was Tiger, Phil Mickelson, and Adam Scott at the time. And Mark just explained to him, look, he's broken his leg. We're not exactly sure if he's going to play. I wanted to give you a heads up. Please don't tell anyone. And to Mike's credit, he thought about it, and he knew that there was, not, there was a chance that he was going to have to fill that spot in with God knows who else. And he went ahead and went with Tiger, and I think that's all kind of the lore of the week, that you know, we're still learning things all these years later about how bad it was and all of the things that Tiger went to. And it was such an iconic moment. They actually put a plaque by 18 this week, which I think is a really cool thing. So I was going to say, Rex, I would imagine you've got a lot of thoughts and memories when you think about that week, but when you look back, what do you remember most about that win for Tiger? We were talking about where we did some documentaries this week coming in, and the one thing that I keep going back to, well, two things. I worked for a weekly magazine at the time, and we had to close the magazine at a certain time on East Coast time on Monday. And when the final putt finally dropped, of course, it went to 19 holes on Monday with he and Rocco immediate. I had about 15 minutes to file 2,000 words on Tiger Woods and try to put this onto perspective. And I was telling my son this story this morning that I don't know that I've ever felt this much stress in my entire life trying to figure this out because there was no way to write it beforehand because you just didn't know how it was going to play out. So that's the first thing. And the second thing on Sunday when Tiger makes the putt that we all know that he makes on the 72nd hole, Mike Davis, who, of course, we know wears blue blazers and is a very buttoned-up kind of guy, he and I are high-fiving next to the green. It was just a crazy moment. So those are the two things that come to mind. That is wild. Rex Hoggard is joining us. All right, Rex, there was so much hype about Phil Mickelson coming into the tournament after winning the PGA Championship. He knows this course. He just turned 51. It would have been an amazing story and would be still if he were to finally win a U.S. Open and did it at Torrey Pines. But if we go back to earlier in the week, how much of a chance did you give him to win this tournament? I didn't give him any chance, and it's the lowest form of lazy journalism. I'll completely own this. Like, I think I've written this column the last three or four years. And it's simply that I felt like Bill's time at the U.S. Open had passed. He simply didn't have the game. And I wrote the same column. I just kind of cut and paste and changed the location and the date and the ages and everything that goes into it. And this is despite the fact that he did what he did at the PGA Championship a few weeks ago, which was wildly impressive, and I think it's just going to be a defining moment in his career but as many things as we can point to this particular story here at Toy Pines, the home course, everything that goes into it, I can point to just as many things, if not more, of why it's not going to happen. I, I mean, Phil has not played this golf course well at all since Reese Jones redesigned it in 2001. He has a sort of a conflicted relationship with Toy Pines after the North Course redesign, which he wanted to do, but some bureaucratic red tape kept him from doing He's moving out of Southern California. He's moving to South Florida. So I think all of these things 
I mean, his relationship with Torrey Pines is just complicated is probably the best way to put it. Right. So to that point, Rex, this thing about the home course, but the complicated relationship, is he really then the hometown guy that everybody likes to portray him as? I don't think so. Because he admitted it early in the week. He had to spend the last week or so just trying to learn the golf course. And this is after playing it all those years, but he just didn't really ever take the time to try to get that home course knowledge back. If I was going to pick a hometown guy, it'd be Xander Shoffley. I think he is the one guy that's probably played here more than Phil has in recent years and understands it better. Is it his time? Where do you come out on Xander right now and the way he's playing? I certainly think it's going to be his time eventually, and I don't know why this would be any different because I don't think it's amazing to me. He's very soft-spoken. He's a very underrated quote when it comes to the media, but I think there's a level of confidence that sort of doesn't recognize what he hasn't accomplished in his career. And by that, when he talks, you would think that he's won four or five majors. There is no lack of confidence when he talks about his ability to contend here or anywhere else, and he's done it time and time again. So, yeah, I can think, I can see him definitely holding the trophy. I, I love this guy, frankly, myself. We're talking to Rex Hoggard. Rex, what about one more thought about Lefty? He had a tough first round yesterday, which included some distractions from cell phones in the gallery. Like, how did he look to you in the way he played and the way he carried himself out there? I wrote that story about it, and it was specifically on 13, the par 5, which he bogeyed in. There were some distractions. I was out there walking with him, and there were some cell phones that were going off, and we're sort of getting back into that as we welcome more and more fans back onto the golf course. But I think, to my point earlier, I think this was more of just a frustration about the golf course. He doesn't like what Brees Jones did to 13. He felt like he took a very good par 5 and and made it probably a par 5 that's not nearly as interesting or as entertaining. So I I would say it's more about what Brees Jones and the redesign than it was the cell phone. Mm. Rex Hoggard is joining us once again. So, Rex, you mentioned Brooks Kepka and Bryson DeChambeau. In the lead-up to the U.S. Open, there was so much talk about the two of them being in the same group for the first two rounds. First off, how likely was it that the USGA was ever going to do something? And even if they had, how do you think those rounds would have gone? In other words, would there have been the fireworks that everybody was looking for? It would have been fine. I mean, I I think it's a little comical because you and I both know that two guys that don't get along working in the same office how original like that happens in every line of work that we know of just not in sports so i don't know that this was completely that interesting other than the fact that those two just seem to be a little bit more willing to talk about it at least publicly than maybe in other situations and the usga did consider pairing them together and it kind of goes along the lines you go back to 2008 i mean pairing one two and three in the world at the time was a little forward thinking and the idea was they were going to pair the last three u.s open champions which it would include those two and Gary Woodland, and I thought Woodland said it best. He goes, I would have loved it. He goes, I would have actually egged him on, trying to trying to get him to fight a little bit, because it's it's good for golf. Like, look, it's not probably what the PGA Tour would love to, to get eyeballs out, but, I mean, Gary brought it up, that Brooks Koepka has been all over the news the last two weeks, and he hasn't even played an event. And so if you're going to grow the game, if you're going to get more people interested, this is probably a pretty good way. Oh, I think it's great. I personally love it myself. Like, how do you see it playing out when Brooks and Bryson are on the same Ryder Cup team? What about that dynamic? They can keep them apart, and it will be interesting. I think Steve Stricker's probably got more in his hands than he wants in that particular situation because you also have to factor in that Patrick Reed probably isn't the best person for the team room right now after what happened at the President's Cup at Royal Melbourne a few years ago and, of course, what happened between he and Jordan Spieth about not being paired together. So Steve's got his hands full, but I always think it's a little entertaining that when we get to the Ryder Cup, everyone talks about how well the European team gets along. That's not true. They have plenty of guys that don't like each other. Padraig Harrington and Sergio Garcia never really liked each other. They were just able to figure it out that one week every two years. And I'm sure the U.S. can can probably do the same thing, but it is something that Steve's going to have to be cognizant of. Rex Hoggard is breaking down a lot of stuff for us. A couple of more moments with him. Rex, from a golf standpoint, what about Brooks? How did he look to you yesterday? He's the kind of the Brooks that we all have come to expect, right? He looked like he was sort of hatched in a lab to contend at major championships. And it's just something about the pressure of this, the difficulty of this, whatever it is that the Grand Slam events bring out in him, that's what we, we saw yesterday. And I, I thought it was interesting the way he sort of changed the narrative. And the only way he was going to change this narrative between he and Bryson was to go out and play really, really well. And he's really good at that, and especially on a golf course like this that's going to separate those guys that might have the game but don't have the mental strength. And that's the difference when it comes to what Brooks is able to do and pretty much everyone else recently. Hey, Rex, a couple of quick things before you go. I'm curious what your thoughts are on Rory McIlroy saying the other day that while he uses green-reading books, he would like to see them banned. 
Like, how much do you think they help, and what's the argument for banning them? I totally agree with Rory. The argument for banning it is reading greens is an art. It's an art form. It's something that you're learned. It's something that you're gifted with. And these books, not only do they slow down play, I think that's the first thing, but for those guys that do kind of have that ability, it does seem like it mitigates it. And I would say that the vast majority of tour players agree with Rory on this one. All right, so it's early, but knowing the course, what kind of a number are you expecting to see the winner when it's all said and done? I was a little surprised guys got to four under yesterday. That was a little bit lower than I thought because Tiger Woods won here at one under par. So I think anything around five or six under par, because it's only going to get faster, it's only going to get firmer and more difficult. So I think what we're going to right now is probably a pretty good number. Who do you like? I look at him, Brooks Kepka. And again, for all the reasons that we just talked about, there's just a different gear that he seems to have, and he relishes this, and he's got that chip on his shoulder, which he seems to play his best golf when, you know, it seems like it's him against the world, and he can play with that. I love it. He is GolfChannels.com senior writer. He is Rex number 7. You want to follow him on Twitter, at Rex Hoggard, GC. And as I always mentioned, he is a good friend of the program. Rex, great job. Good to have you back. I appreciate you. Thanks so much. Love being on. Thanks, Jim. Hey, you want to hear something incredible? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically and with no limit on how much you can earn. Now, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing because of all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards, that's where. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations do apply. Like the last year and a half have been especially hard for the working class everywhere, here, abroad, everywhere. Has not been so hard, however, for the billionaire class, especially the international billionaire class. So maybe you're paying attention to this and maybe you're not, but three of the richest dudes on the globe are currently having their very own little version of a space race. You all remember the space race? The Cold War, remember when the U.S. and the Soviet Union launched orbiting satellites into the sky, trying to plant their flag on the moon first? Remember all that? Sputnik et al. Back then, it was countries going head-to-head. Now it is super billionaires duking it out. Namely, Richard Branson, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos. All three of which are racing to make space tourism a thing. Almost everybody knows that Musk is completely into this extravagant hobby, this side hustle. And at this point, you can set your watch to a bi-weekly news report that he crashed another rocket over some remote part of Texas that he moved to and renamed Starbase. Now, that sounds like something I made up. It's not. He packed up his Tesla and his SpaceX operations last year and moved them to Boca Chica, Texas. He promptly renamed the entire town Starbase. My man's just all up in here running around renaming towns. And before you kill this guy for the name of that town, at least he didn't choose XAEA12. No, he saved that barcode-inspired handle for his newborn son. Anyway, Musk has been the face of this new billionaire obsession to get private companies into space for quite some time now. And from what I'm seeing, the end goal here is to eventually start flying, paying customers around in rocket ships, and charging lots of money to do so. Let's not forget, Elon is trying to put people on Mars which sounds a little unsettling considering this guy couldn't even figure out how to rock-proof the alleged bulletproof window on his stupid little Tesla truck. Oh, my God. Well, maybe that was a little too hard. So you couldn't rock-proof glass, but we're going to trust you to send people to Mars. Oh, okay. So Musk has got competition, though, and thank goodness he does, right? What if that were our only choice? No, there is competition in the space tourism genre, namely Jeff Bezos of Amazon and Richard Branson of the Virgin Group. Do you know how rich you have to be? 
when there's not a yacht big enough or a sports car fast enough or a private jet lavish enough or a stable of thoroughbred racehorses expensive enough to satisfy your earthly rich guy desires. You see what I'm saying? These three billionaires are literally telling you they've conquered earth. There is nothing left here to do. There's nothing left on the ground that's interesting enough for them. There's nothing on the ground that gives them enough juice. They're taking their game to space. I mean, listen carefully. There's bleep you money, bleep you money, and then there's bleep the planet money. And these guys have bleep the planet money. And they're all spending that money as fast as they possibly can to win the race, to get to space first. And guess who's scheduled to win the new age space race? Who do you think has got the lead? Who's on the front? Not Musk. Not Branson. Nope. It's Mr. $36 billion divorce settlement guy, Jeff Bezos. When your divorce makes your non-working ex-wife the seventh richest person in the world and still keeps you in the two-hole, you got bleep the planet and bleep the entire galaxy money. According to reports, old Jeffers is going to launch a rocket next month into space, and he's even going to be on board when it happens. Man, you want to talk about trusting your own product. You want to talk about having skin in the game. How about strapping your ass to a rocket ship that's got your name on it? No wonder Elon Musk is not going to be the first to do this. He knows he'd have no shot. He knows he'd probably kill himself. Because if there's anything Elon Musk loves, it's promising to build underground tunnels and then never doing it and naming his kids after default Wi-Fi passwords and crashing rocket ships. And by the way, does anybody ever accept those suggested default Wi-Fi passwords? Somebody must, right? Or they wouldn't suggest them. I've never done that. Yeah, because I'm going to remember uh, capital A, lowercase u, three, four, six, hashtag, exclamation point, lamb chop. Anyway, yesterday, Bezos unveils his spaceship for the world to see. And the national morning news in Australia could not keep it together. Not because they were amazed, not because they were blown away by the technology, not because they got emotional at the achievement and what it means for civilian space travel. Nope. They were blown away because his rocket ship looked like, how do I put this? A giant 300-foot-long penis. I understand that this is not a visual medium, but their reaction will tell you everything you need to know about what was going through their head when they saw that rocket ship. Rockets everywhere this morning. <laughs> well, outdoing his fellow billionaires in the race to space. <laughs> Amazon boss Jeff Bezos will blast into orbit next month. <laughs> Does that look a little odd to you? Joining <laughs> <laughs> us now for more <laughs> is US correspondent Alison Petrowski Alley. The Bezos flight will officially kick off the company's space. Tourism business. Yes, that's right, Carl. Good morning to you, Carl. Good morning to you, Ali. Launch of the uh, interesting shaped rocket, thanks for pointing that out, Carl, will happen on July 20 <laughs> out of remote West Texas next month. Way to hold it together, journos. I guess they brought back Beeb and Butthead for some morning show in Australia. Quote, does that look a little odd to you, or is it just me? Does that look a little odd to you? <laughs> <laughs> Quote, launch of the uh, interesting shaped rocket will happen next month. Launch 
of the uh, interesting shaped rocket. Thanks for pointing that out, Carl. Will happen on July 20 out of remote. <laughs> I, I don't know. West Given Texas this guy's commitment month. and this guy's passion and the amount of money and time he has spent on this, I'm not exactly sure that's how you want a reveal of this magnitude to go down. The world is laughing at Bezos because he just pulled the tablecloth off a 300-foot hog rocket. Now, I am no space engineer. Maybe that thing needs to look like the world's most gigantic penis in order to work properly. Maybe there's something aerodynamic about that. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm being responsible. Notice I'm not... <laughs> <laughs> Regardless, when you unveil something like that, I don't think that the response that you're looking for is uncontrollable laughing. Then again, you are about to climb into a phallic object the length of a football field. Who designed that thing? Greg Norman? I don't know. There's a reason why this guy's the richest guy in the world, because he's one of the smartest guys in the world, and maybe he wanted it that way. You can't put it past the second richest guy in the world to want to win the space race in a giant rocket dong. Maybe there's some symbolism there. And it's a whole lot more aerodynamic than a middle finger. Anyway, let's just hope that this thing launches and lands safely and successfully because I don't want anything bad to happen to anybody on the SS 300-foot penis. Here's to Elon Musk looking up at the sky next month and seeing a 300-foot hog piloted by his arch-rival flying above his head as Elon just can't even get off the ground, can't even drive a car without a window getting shattered. Here's to Elon picking up a rock and throwing it right through the bulletproof window of his Tesla truck. Oh my God. Or better, yeah, well, you know what he's going to do. Maybe that was a little too hard. Yeah, or maybe it was just a little too poorly constructed. You know what this guy's going to do? He's going to show up at the launch of Bezos gigantic rocket penis and start throwing rocks at that thing. Anyway, super rich and too much time on your hands, dudes. Knock yourselves out. Personally, this is just me personally, I have zero interest in going to space. I like it just fine down here. Maybe I'm a sorry sack. Maybe I'm not a risk taker. But right about now, to me, I consider northern Wisconsin the great frontier. I'm just trying to get there. Knock yourselves out, super rich dudes. Bleep the galaxy money. Hey, clones, what do we want when we are craving protein or we need more energy? Not bars or sugary snacks, not even energy drinks, no. You know what we want? Beef, pure and simple. So where's the beef? It's in a package of Old Trapper beef jerky. Old Trapper is not your old man's jerky. Shriveled, dry, tasteless. Old Trapper beef jerky is made from lean strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a real wood fire. It's tender, it's tasty, it's not tough. And why is it so good? Because Old Trapper is a 50-year-old family business known for their relentless commitment to quality. They take smoked beef extremely seriously. You can taste it in every single bite. Old Trapper is packed with protein. It comes in four amazing flavors to satisfy all your cravings. Look for it in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you do not see it, just ask for it by name because no other jerky compares Oh, Trapper, what's your beef? It is time to bring in the big head himself, James Kelly, for Big Head Bets. I've already done the background. I've already given you the history. We've been doing this for several months now. Real people are making real money following his really big head. Dude, how you feeling? A uh, hell of a lot better than CJ and Kim, I'll say that, Jim. Yeah, right. How'd that go for them? Not well, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, I'm feeling great, man. Feeling great. We're on a little bit of a heater right here. All right. So let me ask you uh, 
In fact, I can answer your question. Check mm-hmm. that. My question. I know you feel good, dude. Given mm-hmm. all of the ones you hit on last week. In fact, I think you pretty much hit on everything last week. You're feeling really good about you. That's clear. But how confident are you heading into this weekend before we get to the individual matchups? Man, this big head couldn't swell any bigger, Jim. I'm pretty confident, but I will say we are bottlenecking a little bit with the NBA here. I can't cherry pick like I usually do and get that free money, so we're getting a little tighter here. All right, so what does that mean that we're bottlenecking with the NBA? Well, we don't back down from making any bet on the air. I mean, we'll take any game as they are, but usually a lot of the times I could pick what I like and then just make my money that way. So we're, we're taking the games that are on tonight. So you have to. What it. can you do? There is your bottleneck. All right, let's start with the Hawks and Sixers. Game six in the ATL. Hawks looking to finish head. Bottom line, game five was a catastrophe for mm-hmm. the Sixers. Actually, game four was a catastrophe as well. They had enormous leads in both games. They came from ahead to choke away both. They should be done. They should be waiting for the winner of Brooklyn-Milwaukee. Instead, they're down three games to two. They're facing elimination. They're in the ATL. What is your number? How are you playing this one? The number is minus three for Philly, and I agree on all the above. The Sixers even being in the situation, Jim, is bad. That's not what they brought Doc Rivers in. And not only did they blow back-to-back games, that fourth quarter by Atlanta in Game 5, it was the second-highest scoring fourth quarter in playoff history by any team. That's embarrassing with the personnel Philly has. So now, a year ago, there's no shot in hell I'd take Philly in this spot. They'd fold, but tonight I am going to hit Philly and minus that three points. They are the more talented team. And Doc, he has to win a big game. It's been a minute now since he's done that, and he has to finish a series he's supposed, supposed to win. Also, Atlanta as a home favorite is the second best covered in the NBA behind the Suns, but as a home underdog, Jim, they are nearly 20% worse, covering only 53% of their games, and Philly isn't bad in this spot as an away favorite. Joel does need help. I'd expect Tobias Harris to be much better. When he scores in single digits like he did in Game 5, he usually bounces back with a big game, and the Sixers usually win. So Tom, the bookie in the back row, mark it down, minus three Phillies at Atlanta. Dude, did you just hit the new guy with a Tom the Bookie in the back row? Man, listen, Jim Rome is all in on sports gambling, and he hired a bookie on staff. You hired my guy, Tom the Bookie. There it is. I am all in. And how committed am I? So committed that I hired a bookie. I see you, bookie. If it's, if it's not, maybe it's me, Big Head, but it seems like you took some like passive-aggressive runs at Doc. Does Doc need to prove something to you? Yes, Doc needs to prove something. I mean, the Clippers lost last year. You know, we blamed, or a lot of people blamed Kawhi and PG-13, rightfully so. But Doc, I mean, come on now. It's been a minute since he's won a big series. I can't even remember the last big series he won. Maybe San Antonio back in the day, but it's been a long time. All right, so, Big Head, my reaction to what you just said. Very tempting to take the home dog, especially as well as Atlanta's been playing, but I don't see Philly not, not bouncing back after horrible back-to-back meltdowns. I'm with you on this. I think Joel shows up. I think Tobias Harris gives him help. I think you're right. Sixers minus three. We're on the same page there. All right, Clippers, Jazz, full disclosure. It's hard for me to trust the Clippers, even with Kawhi Leonard. So there was no way that I was going to trust them or Pandemic P without Kawhi on the road against Utah in Game 5, even though the Jazz were banged up. So you know what I did? Without talking to you, I hammered the money line in that game with the Jazz. And Playoff P shows up, and he hammers me and everybody else who went against him. Question is, can he do it again? Kevin Durant was not able to put together back-to-back legendary performances. Do we really expect Paul George to do so? Are you willing to take a chance on him and the Clippers as home dogs? How are you playing this? So I think Paul is capable of playing big again. I'm just not sure the dudes around him can play that big again. And um, I'm going to go with the urgent Utah team here and another urgent play. Um, I'll take the Jazz minus one here in L.A. Look, Utah is in a similar situation, Jim, as Milwaukee, I feel. Um, yes, they are busted up a bit more, but they may never get another better look at winning the entire thing than they have right now. They can't lose this series. They have to capitalize on this whole thing. I mean, if they don't, they are kind of switching narratives with cl- uh, the Clippers, it seems, a bit, who can't finish. I mean, they blew a 3-1 to one, a 3-1 lead against Denver a year ago. 
I will say, though, the Jazz haven't been great at covering away from Utah this season. They only hit on 50% of their away games against the spread. But lately, as an away favorite, the Jazz are playing well. They have covered their last four in this spot. It seems like Mike Conley Jr. will go tonight. I'm thinking he will. I'm taking the Jazz minus one, Quinn Snyder. God, it just seems that you love Quinn Snyder, don't love you? Love him. Yeah, love I him. do too. Yeah. I do too. I love the guy's coach. It seems really weird to me, though, that we're going to go both. We have a chance to take the home dogs, and we're going both against them. I'm with you on that one, too. Okay. I'm on the same page. All right, so Jazz, you have Jazz minus one, or is it minus one and a half? I got minus one right now. Okay. Yep. So as many know, this is a big NHL house, especially this time of year. The NHL postseason is as good as any or better than any sports postseason. I'm not saying that for effect. I'm not saying that's great, quote, engagement. I'm not hot taking it. I've always said that. I've always meant it. And you know the clones love when I taw hockey. They do. Today, Alvin. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you, Alvin. Yeah, thank you, Alvin. 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 Anyway, big head. What I did not know initially was that they not only love when I taw hockey, they love when I bet hockey. Mm-hmm. I had trouble getting my head around that, but you follow these things. You have the analytics. You have the data. It's a fact, right? The clones love to get down and bet hockey. Yes, they do. They're passionate on both subjects. Now, they could be playing us and just love it when we talk anything hockey. I I don't have the numbers to show that they're actually betting, but they listen to the betting content. Mm, But you know who might have the actual bets? Our bookie Tom in the back row. Maybe Tom could help us with that. Dude, is that really your bookie? That is my bookie. I swear, it looks exactly like him. Okay, there you go. So what this is, this is a huge Vegas Golden Knights house. Has been since the very second they dropped the first puck on that ice. Game three tonight, head. The Mm -hmm. Canadians ripped the home ice back by shocking the Golden Knights in their house. Are you looking for Vegas to turn the tables on them tonight? If so, how are you playing that and what is the number and approach? That's exactly what I'm looking to do. I'm going Vegas on the money line tonight. Mm. Right now, and in the playoffs, these two teams are exact exact opposites of each other. The Canadians come out flying and get off to hot starts. They are 9-1 when they score first this postseason. And the Golden Knights, they start slow. They need to change that tonight, and they need their forwards to start putting the puck in the net. Their defensemen have scored five of their six goals in this series. Wow. I think that changes tonight, yeah. And also, they travel well, and the Canadians were actually tied with the Maple Leafs as the worst home cover in the entire NHL against the puck line this season. I'm going money line in Golden Knights, though. Minus 159 here. I was going to say, what's the money line? So minus 159. I'm looking over my right shoulder, dude. That that picture, that caricature they have of you, what was that when you were like 18? You got to be so happy with that, dude. You look nothing like that. I look great. That dude's dashing, man. All right, so you got minus 159. Vegas on the money line. No way I let you go without getting your thoughts on the U.S. Open. Now, you have done really well in recent years in betting the tourney or betting majors. For instance, you just missed on Brooks Kepka at the PGA Championship. Last year, you did clean up at the U.S. Open by taking science and getting a nice number of wing foot. Who are the guys you're on today and this weekend at Torrey? Yeah, so full disclosure here, my strategy is being thrown off a little bit because these later tee times, I love them. They're awesome. It's way so better So you're to making watch. excuses. I'm making excuses, a little bit of an excuse out here. So it's not the best possible situation to be in, but you know what? I gamble. That's what I do. And as tempted as I am to take Dick Bland, the current leader, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go Johnny Rahm. Plus 700 to get his first major. He's playing great. He's out a good start today. Um, I'm going to go him plus 700. I'm going to go Xander. I, I was tempted to go Brooks. I just, not, with his history at the course, I'm just not going to go there. I'm going to go Xander plus 1,000 to try to get his first major here too. So one of these two guys, that's my bet, is to, for one of these guys to get their first major. I actually love both those picks. I love John Rahm at plus 700. I love Xander at hey, plus 1,000. I know he's going to get it at some time, mm-hmm. at some point. If not this week, then he will. What's the number on Brooks right now? Uh, he's around that 600 back and forth. He's probably the favorite right now with, uh, Rom's probably second, third hole right there, but, uh, you can get Brooks for around 550, 600 right now. All right. So we are looking to get paid. What, what are your NBA numbers compared to your NFL numbers when your NFL numbers were like a sizzling 64%? NBA numbers are better. 
I, I mean, we've been on a roll the last six weeks here with the NBA games. Uh, we started in the regular season and even this playoffs, especially after last week, man, we've been on fire on NBA. All right, so you and I are all about this. I'm all about being in the gambling space, so much so that I hired a bookie and I put him in the back row. Right. If they jumped in late, run it back one more time. Who do you have and how are we getting down? Yeah, and Tom, could you please write down this uh, real quick so I don't have to call you after the show? I got Philly minus three, the Jazz minus one, Golden Knights on the money line, and for the U.S. Open, I'm going to go with Johnny Rom and Xander. Rom at plus 700 and Xander plus 1,000. When did he become Johnny to you? I don't know. Kind of liked it. All right. Yeah. So here's the thing. I want to say for the record, like I'm not just doing this for content. I've already put my money down. I also hit the Sixers minus three. I hit the Jazz minus one. I hit the Golden Knights on the money line myself. I have not hit golf yet because, frankly... The site that I'm on is not offering that, or I can't figure it out. Every once in a while, man, some of these sites, like you and I, I have multiple sites, and you and I are not on the same sites because the site that you're on, I don't want to mention it, blocked me because we have an issue, we have a dispute. So yeah. I haven't hit it yet. I'm in several different locations, so I might have access to a site or two more than you do, Jim. Sorry. How many? Uh, I'd say three, four, five. All right, that's probably about that best three, four, or five more than I have. Now I've, got, I've got two or three. All right, we'll see how it goes. Listen, Head, have an amazing weekend. Let's get paid. We already got down. Let's win some money, yo. Hell yes. Thanks, Jim. Good job, Head. What's cracking? Welcome to the jungle. My name is Jim Rome. A tremendous Monday to you. Hope you had a great weekend, and we have got a really important week, a critical week. Lots to get to. In fact, I don't say I'm going to get to everything today that I want to get to, but let me start right here. Yeah! Irving, who lays it in, and it fell hard on his right side, and he's down, holding his right ankle. Actually, it looked like his foot got ripped off altogether, and then was placed on the floor next to the rest of his leg. Kyrie Irving is in pain. He's slamming the floor. The Bucks did look like they were dead, down two games to none, but now we have a completely different series. Kevin Ioli, how would you explain the absolute love and affection that the fans have for Nate Diaz? He never gave up. He just kept coming, and he tried to find a way to win. As the fans say, he is so real. Watching the simulcast on CBS Sports, who's the noob? Was that Eddie Munster? I saw in the back row. Glad you gave Ritz grandson a job. Looks like every college drug, drug dealer drug ever. Drugs. John Wertheim is my guest. 84 was an explosion of cable, and something that really helped pop music was you didn't just hear the sound. You didn't just hear Bruce Springsteen, but you saw him, and he invites the woman out of the front row to dance with him, to be a dancing in the dark. That was Courtney Cox. <laughs> Kathleen drunk and barefoot, stumbling her way through her moonshine field ramp. And then there's that cringy, creepy stalker in West Virginia. You gotta watch out for her, Jim. First, you're eating potato soup, and before you know it, Melissa has you screaming for your life at the bottom of a well in her basement. You, on the other hand, are an alcoholic frog, <laughs> and all that alcohol is gonna send you to an early grave, and I will be waiting right there with the first shovel full of dirt. Hey, Melissa, what's up? Oh, I'm a little peeved right now, but Kim can talk some and she sounded mad, didn't she? Kawhi makes his move. Oh! Wow! This is a game played by big men for the ultimate prize. Throw it down, big man. Sam Amick. The family's called 911, and I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, guys, what are we doing here? Like, it's, it's a sprained ankle. They gave me the Ethan Hunt Mission Impossible experience. They put me on a big table, dangled Ooh. me out of the forest for like three miles. The commissioner has got a hammer, and he's not afraid to swing it. Rob Manford is coming in hot. You cheat, you get wrecked. Namely, a paid vacation. What? An all-expense paid trip to Cabo. Didn't want any of that. Stephanie Epstein joining us. Some guys have it on the inside of their belt buckle, so if you see them kind of adjusting the top on their jersey a lot. Sometimes they're going to sticky stuff. One guy who keeps it in his mouth, which sounds just foul to me. Well, Burroughs looks like he's sick. In fact, I'm pretty wow. sure he is. The only he's thing worse than throwing up is throwing up in front of people. You can't swallow all of that acid, which is forcing its way up your esophagus and out your mouth. I lost my wallet today, Ernie. You still carry a wallet? I have not been a wallet guy for years. I've got so much bleeping money in my bleeping rubber band, I can't hear you. 
you? Yo, OG, you're old school. You got a rubber band. I'm like, right, because I don't want to be a dope with a wall. He took down the biggest roach we have ever seen in these parts. Alvin's got gigantic roach antennas, I should say, up on his wall. This roach is like, hey, yo, you want some of this, bitch? I got this. Man's game, Roach. Finds Durant, working right, put up three. Good! Okay! When you look back on game five of Bucks Nets, you're probably going to remember one thing. Kevin, Wayne, Durant, Kevin! Austin Hooper joining me for a few more moments. All right, now is the time. Like, are we pretenders or contenders? So this is the fun part. This is the beginning. I dictate how I want my balls to be rubbed up. Right, it's my bleeping game. I dictate. You ask any pitcher, they would tell you that about their baseballs. My balls. Fry beef was with... Rock snacks without any beef. Vegetarian rock snacks? What are we doing here? Throw chopper beef turkey. Looks good. We're talking to Logan Ryan. I feel like I'm one of those, like J. Cole said in a song, the middle child, where I feel like I'm kind of an old soul. You know, now I'm in year nine NFL. I see these guys coming out, and I feel like they feel they're entitled. They feel like they want it right away. They want to transfer. They don't, they don't want to go through it the hard way. Bradley, you might want to switch up your abs. Sucking on a stove that looks like a jumbo-sized Nathan's dog that Joey Chestnut dethroats every year like he's on Pornhub. Well, they're, they're what... what? Will, you obviously know the show. As I walk out the door today, please Frisbee toss me one of those golden magnums, brother. Come on. Come on. Let's just hope that this thing launches safely and successfully because I don't want anything bad to happen to anybody on the SS 300-foot pace. Hot, sloppy game, bitch. RSV me. So, like, Les tells his lady. No, seriously, I'm fully... Hired a bookie on staff. You hired my guy, Tom the Bookie. Borderline non-basketball. Borderline erotic. 30 pieces of pizza. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't porn. Bedroom prowess of a 20-year-old. Ask Vic and no cows only. How many times have you run into kilt guy? Manure chocolate fountain. Having a beef with Nitsa? Wrong. Wow. Did I hear that you guys actually met Rich Ackerman? That's who you're dealing with now, Lance. Good night now! The Reds are at San Diego tonight at 7 p.m. Pacific time. Eric Hosmer is my guest. Eric, it's great to have you back on. How are you? I'm doing good, Robbie. Good to talk to you again, man. Dude, so good to talk to you, Eric. Great to have you back. So let me ask you, you're coming off that win yesterday, and it had so many moments in it. But before we get to that, can you tell me, Eric, what's it been like playing in front of the fans? Not only the fans, but the first sellout at Petco Park since 2019. What did it feel like to have the fans and the energy in that crowd once again? Yeah, it felt great. It's, um, you know, it seems like that's been kind of a build-up process from you know, going to no fans at all to limited capacity. And each homestand we got back, it went from 30% to 40% and then finally had maximum capacity last night. And, um, you know, the energy was, was incredible there last night. I think the fans have been, you know, ready to, to come out and watch this team for a long time now, ever since the 2020 season started. And, um, you know, I think they got to let out all that excitement last night in a great game, first time in front of full capacity. That's a great explanation. Eric Hosmer joining us. Now, you had a 2 nothing lead going into the ninth, but the Reds scored four in the top. I mean, a blown save can be pretty deflating, but it didn't seem to deflate you guys. Manny Machado leads off the top in the ninth with a walk, and then you come up with one out. What was your approach to that at bat? Uh, just trying to find a way to honestly keep the line moving and keep it going. Um, as a team, you know, we had a, we had a rough road trip there, and, we knew we were going to get back at home and in front of a full crowd with a lot of energy. So it would have been a tough way to, to lose last night and, um, you know, especially how the game started and, and all that. So it was big for us to get that win last night, especially how we did it. And, you know, the way we've been playing lately, I think a win like that can really shift momentum and, and get some energy on our side and hopefully get us going on a little run here. Eric Hosmer joining us. Fact is, you absolutely crushed that ball down the right field line to tie the game. The stadium exploded the instant you made contact. It was a full-blown party by the time the ball landed. Like, I know you're not looking to make it about you, but what's it feel like to be at the center of a moment like that? Can you describe that feeling? Yeah, it's, it's a great feeling. It really is. You know, off the bat, I was I knew it was close to the foul pole, and it was kind of hooking towards it, so just hoping it stayed fair from that point. But um, it's always fun as a player. Those are the moments you dream about being in, and those are the moments that you got to picture yourself in. I think, uh, you know, a lot of guys, um, you know, not really shy away from it, but you got to understand that uh, those are moments you want to be in as a player, and those are the moments why you work so hard. So any opportunity you get in those big situations, you just try and 
calm down a little more and just try and get into the moment and uh, you know look for a mistake and not miss it. So, Eric, to that point, like it seems to me, it seems kind of counterintuitive. And go ahead, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. But even if you're at that level and you make it to the major leagues, I got to think that not everybody covets that moment. Not everybody wants to be in that moment. You just said that's exactly what you want. You want to love that. Have you always been that way? Did you kind of conjure that up, learn learn to feel that way? Like, how did you get to be that guy in those moments? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a situation that uh, you just kind of picture yourself in time and time again. I think, um, you know, if you want to be a champion at the end of the day, you realize you got to go through some moments like that. And uh, when you're going on a championship run, it seems like every, every player, every individual has their key moment that, you know, really brings some energy and really uplifts the team. So, um, you know, you just got to keep picturing it. You got to keep telling yourself that it's coming. And when it's coming, you're ready for it. And, you know, baseball is a weird game because when the situation gets bigger and the crowd gets louder. You almost have to find a way to just, you know, be calmer yourself in the box and do less and uh, just let the adrenaline take over. And, um, you know, now I'm running through my 10th year in the league, so I've gotten a little better at, uh, you know, not getting too hype with the moment and trying to settle in. And, um, you know, I think that's what leads to those big moments is just picturing it and really settling yourself into that mode and, and trying to do less. One more thought about that, like try easier, do less, settle in. I mean, these are all really hard things to do. Like, how do you do that? Is it breathing? Is it visualization? What exactly are the tactics or strategy? Yeah, you know, breathing definitely helps uh, kind of settle yourself into the moment. But just having gone through moments like that before and understanding from from failures as well that, uh, you know, maybe one time early on in my career or whether it was later in my career, you probably try and do a little too much in that moment and, you know, that can be the uh, the reason why you, you just miss a ball and get under it rather to, you know, hitting it on the barrel and putting it out of the ballpark. So, um, you know, there's plenty of moments where I've came up in that situation and just came short. And uh, it's one of those things where, you know, you, you picture that next moment and you realize what you did wrong in the previous moment. And, you know, you tell yourself uh, the next time that comes, you're you know, just going to lock in, settle in, and, and just try and put a nice, easy swing and not miss your pitch. This is an Eric Hosmer conversation. I'm kind of shaking my head. It's funny, man. This is exactly why you are who you are and why you are where you are, and this is why they need you and want you. Back in the sixth <laughs> inning, Fernando Tatis Jr. hit his 22nd home run of the year. I mean, you've been around him for a little while right now. How would you describe what it is that makes him so unique and so special and so different? Man, it's, it's incredible what this guy's been doing. Um, you know, I, I haven't been able to see anything like it on a day-to-day basis he's, he's easily the best talent I've played with and um you know he's just so I think what what separates him is, is having all that talent and he's you know mentally just above everybody else when it comes to the game it's uh you know he keeps it simple when it comes to preparing for pitchers and you know studying guys and it seems like that first time he faces a guy and he sees every single one of his pitches that once he sees his old arsenal there's really nothing a pitcher can do to get him out after that so you know, he's a big problem uh, for, for a lot of pitchers in this league, and uh, I've had the best seat in the house getting able to watch him do what he's done so far in his, early on in his career. But, uh, um, you know, obviously Mike Trout is Mike Trout. you got to prove it for a long time to be at that level. But he's got every, every bit of talent that Mike has, and, um, you know, I think he's more than willing to go out there and prove that he can be that type of player for the next, you know, 10, 15 years. You know, as a quick follow, like his, his mental approach, you mentioned that. Is his mental approach and his preparation as good and as strong as his physical gifts? Yeah, it's, it's definitely beyond his years. You know, he obviously grew up in a big league clubhouse. But, um, you know, I remember his rookie year, day one, when he broke camp with the team. Uh, we got to San Diego, and opening day we had a day game. And, you know, he was there at 9 o'clock in the morning working on his body in the weight room and getting everything ready for, for the big game. So, He's above and beyond his years. He really is, and he's a better teammate than he is player, which is which is hard to believe. Wow. He's a fantastic player, but um, you know he's going to be the reason why we're going to do good things here in San Diego and why we're going to win a championship here. Because uh, when your best player is leading by example and leading in the clubhouse as well, that usually leads to pretty special things. Eric Cosmer joining us. You didn't say if we win a championship. I think you just said when we win a championship. Am I right? Absolutely, man. That's the goal. That's been the goal here for a long time, and we feel like we got the pieces to do it. Listen, you you and I have talked for the last few years about this, but you were part of that turnaround when you came from the beginning. Like, you go back to 2018, they were coming off a 71-win season, and then you show up, and that sent a sign, I think, to a lot of people around Major League Baseball. Then Manny Machado comes, then Blake Snell, then you Darvish. You've got the growth of the young talent. I mean, 
obviously you would not have gone there if you didn't see potential, but did you envision something this dramatic, this amazing when you got there? Um, yeah, definitely not this, this, this amazing, this dramatic, like you're saying. I think, uh, you know, I realized the talent that we had in the farm system here, and I realized it could be a special group of guys. But, um, you know, some of those other guys you mentioned that have joined in as, as far as Snell and, and Darvish and Manny and, you know, those are guys I never envisioned that would, would be over here. And, um, you know, that, that team I was on in 2015 was a special team, a special group. And, um, you know, this team here in San Diego, as far as talent goes, is every bit as good as that group. And, uh, you know, we're starting to mesh and come together just like that 2015 team at Kansas City did. And I think games like last night is a great example of uh, just, you know, really having the momentum the whole entire game and having the lead. And then right there in the ninth inning, it gets kind of swiped from you and, um, we didn't back down as a team. We still fought and, uh, you know, came out with a victory. And I think it's wins like that that really show that characteristics of a good team. And I think that's where, uh, you know, teams know we're going to be a problem because we're going to play a full nine innings and give you everything we got. Eric Hosmer joining me for another moment or so. So there's been so much talk before the season and then throughout it about the rivalry with the Dodgers. You know, I live, I was talking about this, Eric, I live between San Diego and L.A. I grew up in Los Angeles. I worked in San Diego. I've seen this thing firsthand for decades. I'm curious, as somebody who's down the middle of it, how do you view that? Are they just another team or is there a little something extra and is, is there that rivalry? Uh, they're certainly just, just not another team. You know, they're the world champions of last year. They've been kind of running the division here for a long time. So, you know, we understand we got to go through them to get to where they want to be. And, and we welcome that challenge. We understand that they're a great team and they're getting better and better throughout the years. And, uh, that's kind of the standard of, of what you want to be. If you want to be a world championship or world champion. And, you know, we certainly feel like we line up good against those guys and we've had a good, uh, you know, exciting first couple series against those guys, but, you know, really our whole division you can't sleep on. San Francisco's playing unbelievable. and Every time you look up at the scoreboard, it seems like they're up by four or five runs, and they've been playing great baseball. So, you know, we understand that uh, we're going to have to be consistent in the way we play. We're going to have to be consistent the rest of the summer all the way throughout this 162-game grind. And, um, you know, we'll see what happens when we look up. But, you know, our division is certainly loaded, and the Dodgers are, are right there and uh, the Giants as well. So it's uh, it's going to be tough to – keep up with those guys but you know that's what you want to do when uh you want to win a division so we got to continue to play our game consistently throughout the summer and then hopefully throughout the end of the season right so one last thought you mentioned the grind you were second in the majors in terms of games started from 2015 to 2019 then you had that crazy season last year where it was an all-out sprint what's it like then been adjusting back to a 162 game season yeah it's definitely been an adjustment it's uh you know i think you, you get so used to the 162-game grind, and then you switch it up last year with a 60-game sprint, and uh, and you're back to the 162-game grind now. And, you know, it was so different last year because really your start dictated a lot of your season. If you got off to a bad start, it would be really hard to turn it around and, and vice versa. But, uh, you know, now for this 162-game season, you just realize it's, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And, you know, you got to be steady. you got to be steady throughout the whole year. And um, it definitely has its differences, but – I think everyone's slowly starting to settle back into that 162-game grind. And uh, it's funny, you know, because I think a couple weeks ago, whenever we reached the 60-game mark, everyone kind of looked around and was like, man, that was a full season last year, and uh, just kind of laughed and, and <laughs> really didn't feel real that that could be possible. But I think everyone's definitely adjusted back to this 162-game grind and, and this marathon that uh, that we all love. That is wild. That, that really is kind of funny and weird and surreal. <laughs> Man, and the, you guys are something else. He is a World Series champion, an all-star, a four-time gold glove winner, a silver slugger winner, a WBC champ, and right in the middle of something absolutely incredible in San Diego. Eric, I really appreciate you. It had been a minute or two. So good to have you back on the show. Thanks for doing that, Eric. No doubt, Roman. Always good to talk to you, man. Be yeah. well. Good night.